0: Is this the scariest personification of obsession in any novel I've ever read? I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and today I'm discussing the first half of May's book Light by M. John Harrison published in 2002. So each month I take a book, split it in two and discuss each half on the second and last Fridays. I'll do a first impression summary alongside my thoughts and reactions and then raise any interesting ideas so far in the novel. Be aware, there may be spoilers. I'd love to share your thoughts and ideas at future episodes. So please leave a comment or start a conversation below. Or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Welcome to Bookshook. So I've read up to chapter 18 on page 161 the circus of Pathet Lao. I've removed any swear words, but be aware there are adult themes in the novel, such as violence. So we start off with a university physicist, Kearney. He's giving a regional science talk and then he murders his companion, Clara. We see him at his lab with his colleague, Brian Tate. They're both working on a quantum computer. And then we go forward 400 years to meet Syria. She's in her spaceship called the White Cat. She's scavenging for materials at the Kevahooshi tract. She is tracked by her old employer, Nastic, who are many tentacled aliens who ask her to join them in the war. She wants no part of it and flees. Now, these shadow operators are her personal assistants. I'll chat a bit more about that later. Then we meet someone called Teg Vesicle on Earth. He's collecting rent for the Cray Sisters and works on the speciality farm and also moves a recreational drug called H. He looks in on one of his tanks. Ed Chinese is in one and he's experiencing a scene from a cop show from the 1980s featuring characters such as Chinese Ed. This tank seems to provide some kind of ultra real virtual reality. Then we go back to present day Kearney. The scientist is visiting his estranged wife. She's anorexic and she's seeing things. While asleep, he has a dream of being a child by the beach. Staring at pebbles, quote, he saw clearly that the gaps between the larger stones made the same sort of shapes as the gaps between the smaller ones. The more he looked, the more the arrangement repeated itself. Suddenly he understood this as a condition of things. If you could see the patterns the waves made, or remember the shapes of a million small white clouds, there it would be, a boiling, inexplicable, vertiginous similarity in all the processes of the world, roaring silently away from you in ever-shifting repetitions. Always the same, never the same thing twice. He later calls this... Willed fractality or Schrander, and he carries around some Schrander dice which he rolls and consults. Now he decides to find someone called Valentine Sprake to ask him what the dice rolls mean. Hopefully we'll see why later. He's wandering the streets of London, he visits the quote schizophrenics of Soho Square, and overhears a woman mention the kefahuhi who he tracked, where Syria Mao had been earlier many years in the future. He presses her for more information, and she talks of, quote, fire coming down. I like how London as a city is almost feeding him information and inspiration, like a big living, breathing consciousness. Then we go back to Syria Now, 400 years in the future. She's in constant communication with these shadow operators. She flies to a planet called Hotel Splendido to seek out someone called Uncle Zip and, quote, make a deal with him. Syrian Mao doesn't seem to have a body. The shadow operators say to her, quote, You could at least run yourself in a cultivar. You would look so nice. They brought out a cultivar for her. It was herself, seven years old. They had decorated its little pale hands with intricate henna spirals, then put it in a floor-length frock of white satin, sprigged with muslin bows and draped with cream lace. It stared shyly at its own feet and whispered, What was Relinquished Returns? Syria Mao drove the shadow operators away. I don't want a body, she screamed at them. I don't want to look nice. I don't want those feelings a body has. Now she visits Uncle Zip via Fetch. And Syria Mao's Fetch, quote, looked like a cat. It was a low-end model which came in colours you could change according to your mood. Otherwise it resembled one of the domestic cats of ancient earth. Small, nervous, pointy face and with a tendency to rub the side of its head on things. And then we have a wonderful description of Uncle Zip as he is entertaining guests on a piano accordion. Quote, a fat driven man with protuberant china blue eyes, inflated white cheeks, rosebud lips and a belly as hard as a wax pear. Such short and evocative descriptions peppered throughout the novel so far. Now a tailor in this world appears to be able to make bodies called cultivars for ghosts or what I'm imagining is disembodied consciousnesses. As Uncle Zip says, quote, just a Fotino, Syria is seeing him to complain that the cultivar she got from him is not operating correctly, and Uncle Zip admits that it is not his handiwork and was acquired. Syria Mao says that he is asking for a quote Dr Hands Now back to Tig Vesicle, and Evie Cray is looking for Ed Chinese, but Tig doesn't want him caught because he's the only regular customer in his tank farm, which is, remember, the virtual reality experience place that Tig runs as a side hustle. So he says he doesn't know him, which is dangerous because the Cray twins are powerful. Do they remind you of the notorious Cray twins, perhaps, of the mid 20th century, Ronald and Reginald Cray, by any chance? Anyway, after she leaves, he looks at the tank wondering why he's wanted. Now we learn that this guy, Tig Vessel is a quote, new man. A bipedal humanoid that invaded Earth in the 2100s. Quote, they took over and in an amiable paternalistic way misunderstood and mismanaged everything. It appeared to be an attempt to understand the human race in terms of a 1982 Coke ad. They produced food no one could eat, outlawed politics in favour of the kind of bureaucracy you find in the subsidised arts and buried enormous machinery in the subcrust which eventually killed millions. After that they seemed to fade away in embarrassment, taking to drugs, pop music and the twink tank which was then an exciting, if less than reliable entertainment technology. I love that description. It's brilliant. Very Douglas Adams, and not what you'd expect an alien race to do to earth. Now we see more of Ed Chinese's 80s cop show experience involving lovemaking with Rita. A big yellow duck appears to tell him he's got 10 minutes left of the experience. We go back to Valentine's Sprake's flat. Kearney's there. He tells him, quote, it caught up with me in the Midlands, Now, presumably that's the need or desire to kill, i.e. Clara. Kearney says he's, quote, sick of doing it. And Sprake advises him, quote, you better get out then. I doubt you'll finish with a whole skin, whatever you do. Very intriguing. Is Kearney experimenting with some rudimentary early form of cultivar by killing humans, perhaps? Kearney then sees a giant shadow of a horse's skull. It's incredibly spooky and scary. Then we move back to Syria. She's at the Kalahuki Tract. Syria inquires who Dr. Hans is of Uncle Zip. He doesn't know, but he does give the address of Billy Anker, who sourced the suspect cultivar for Syria. Then we move to Tig Vesicle. There's a raid by Fedora Gash's punks looking for Chinese Ed. And then the Cray sister turns up and kills off the last two of Gash's punks. They bought his paper, i.e. his loan from Fedora Gash. But seeing the dead punks adds, quote, Looks like she didn't want to sell. The scene ends with Ed and Tig leaving the tank farm on fire with presumably Krasis is dead, but who knows? They might come back. Then we go back to Kearney. He's back with his ex-wife. He's gone to the flat to grab some clothes. He wakes her at 5 a.m. She has a new lover who flees in his car. He's upset that some chalk figures have been rubbed off a blackboard. Anna says, quote, Did you come back to kill me like all the others? So he's a serial killer, murder is in his blood or is he being moved to murder by something? Perhaps those Schrander's dice. He drives to the airport and Alla follows him and accompanies him to New York. She says, quote, "'You can't keep running away from it forever, you know.'" I'm thinking, from what? From murder, the desire to murder? I love this short, sharp, to the point dialogue in this novel. It's used very sparingly, but with great effect. He reflects on how his interest in maths and then tarot and then unpredictability developed as a young man. Now, I'm guessing these Shrander dice are dictating his actions, why he murdered Clara and now why he is flying to New York. He gets the dice out and Anna says, quote, if you throw those things here, I'll leave you to it. I'll leave you on your own. This should have seemed less like a threat than it did. Kearney considered her, then the steaming street. I can't feel it near me, he admitted. For once, perhaps I won't need them. Very intriguing. What isn't near him? He goes on to say his fear is abating, so maybe it's perhaps the drive to murder. Now we go back to Syria. She's in the White Cat, and the ship sends her to sleep. She dreams of childhood, and her mother and father... At the moment, she's transporting some prospectors on her ship. We have a flashback to the cultivar unwrapping, which says, Dr. Hans, to surgery, please. And then the narrator says that, Syria wanted to be human again. Obviously, she's very moved by these dreams she's having. She's woken to be told that two ships are following the white cat. The cargo, four humans and a clone, engage in lots of sexual activity that Syria spies on. Now, back with Ed Charnie's and Tig Vesicle, They've escaped from the tank farm. Ed is approached by a strange holographic woman. He shoots her and, quote, nothing happened for a moment. She continued to stand there looking up at him. Then she seemed to disassemble herself into a stream of tiny energetic golden motes, which poured away from the point of impact to join the sparks of the rain. First her head dissolved, then her body. She burned away quite slowly like a firework consuming itself to make light. There was no sound at all. What a phenomenal description of something disappearing into ether. Now they go to Tig's home. Chinese meets Nina, Tig's wife. She's presumably a, quote, new woman because her physiology is not human and she hisses. She's quite happy to have sex with Ed, who is in withdrawal from the tank. Quote, twinks on withdrawal were desperate for sex. It was like morphine to them. Then we go back to Kenny and Anna. They're in New York and he sees the Schrander. He explains to Anna that it's like a horse's skull. Quote, the skull of a horse looks nothing like the head at all, but like an enormous curved shears or a bone beak whose two halves meet only at the tip. Imagine, he had told her, a wicked, intelligent, purposeless looking thing which apparently cannot speak. A few ribbons or strips of flesh dangle and flutter from it. Even the shadow of that is more than you can bear to see. Now we saw that skull at Valentine's Sprake's flat. Very spooky. The Schrander quote, had certainly told him something. And he runs away with Anna. So is it this Schrander, this skull, that's been telling him to do the murder? This is what I'm believing now. As his wife is lying in a hotel room, he does prepare a knife and wire and what I assume is about to be her murder. But she wakes and he doesn't kill her, but they make love instead. Then they fly back to England and he thinks, quote, The Schrander had been waiting for him all along to catch up. He can't escape from it now Syria spies on her cargo guests again 400 years in the future her cruiser is being followed by the Nastic cruiser called Touching the Void remember at the beginning of the novel she was tracked by her old employer the Nastic they want her to join them in the war she has a very powerful ship a K-ship but Syria wants no part of it she escapes once more the mathematics sends her into another dream of childhood the father figure is telling her you will have to be the mother now Syria didn't want to be anyone's mother. Evidently some kind of mother figure for Syria died in childhood. Now she kills her human cargo believing that they must have some transponder with them which is why she was followed but the ship's mathematics, the control centre, says that they didn't. One clone survives and Syria keeps her alive on the ship. We learn that the ship is still being followed. Syria seems to be a very heartless and compulsive character. Now Back to Tig Vescal and Ed Chinese. Ed owes the Kray sisters some money. We learn that they're definitely still alive. We have a history of Ed. He's like a bit of a rogue, a Han Solo character. He knows Billy Anchor, and so this is how the serious story relates to Ed. Remember the rogue cultivar was sourced for Syria from Billy Anchor. He seems to have done everything in the galaxy. So Tig asks him why he became a twink, a tank drug addict. Quote, Ed grinned his slow grin. The way I think of it is, he explained, when you've done all the things worth doing, you're forced to start on the things that aren't. Now Tig finds Ed making love to his wife Nina and then the Cray sisters appear and accost them. All the way through this first half, there are wonderful descriptions of the Cray sisters. They remind me of the two ladies from a Beryl Cook painting, if you know her work. Quote, The two of them stood there in the middle of the street in the blowing snow where they had been waiting all along. They were fully made up and clutching their big purses to their chests like women, out for fun on the edge of the garment district, seven o'clock at night, ready to drink and do drugs and meet what the world had to offer. To keep the chill off... They had each added a little waist-length fake fur jacket to their black skirts and secretary blouses. In addition, Bella was wearing a pillbox hat of the same material. Their bare legs were reddened and chapped above black calf-length winter boots. Evie Cray began to unzip her purse. She looked up from the operation halfway through. Oh, you can go, dear, she said to Nina, as if she was surprised to find her there. We won't need you. Have you ever seen a Beryl Cook painting? Well, this is one in prose, wonderful stuff. Now, Tig and Nina escape, but Ed ends up killing Evie Cray, leaving, quote, Bella screaming for the gun punks. Oh dear Ed. Kearney, 400 years previously, is back in London now, and he meets Brian Tate. Brian complains that Kearney is always off places and that Gordon is selling off 49% of their lab to merchant banks. Tate shows him what he's been working on, some kind of strange experiment that creates a beam of fractals, quote, a bear wolf system that fakes space. Something gathered itself up behind the code somewhere and shot out across the screen. A million colored lights boiling and sweeping about like a shoal of startled fish. Kearney sees something more in it but keeps quiet. Perhaps he sees the Schrander. Now Brian Tate says that a character called Sprake has been trying to find Kearney. Very intriguing. This is the Valentine Sprake that Kearney has been going to seek advice about the Schrander. Now remember the Schrander appears to be instructing him to murder. This is a big problem for Kearney. We hear the history of how Kearney met Sprake on a tube train. Quote, Kearney had met Sprake perhaps five years after he stole the dice. The meeting occurred on a crowded commuter train passing through Kilburn on its way to Euston. Now he acts in a drunk manner that frightens off many of the passengers until Kearney has left and we hear Sprake say to Kearney, quote, you just have to keep killing, don't you? Because that's the way to keep it at arm's length. Am I right? Very spooky. So he's killing to keep the Shrander away, not because he's instructed to by the Shrander. that, In the following years, they kill together. Quote, But in the end, complicity was all it turned out to be. Despite these acts of propitiation, his circumstances remained unchanged and the Shrander pursued him everywhere he went. It's revealed that Sprake really didn't have any insight into Kearney's condition. Quote, That afternoon on the Euston train, he had been looking for a cause to attach himself to. The folie adieu, which we would advance his own emotional ambitions. For all his talk, he knew nothing. A folie adieu is mental illness or a delusion that is shared by two people in close association. We have a description of those elusive Shrander dice. Quote, Despite their colour, they were neither ivory nor bone, but each face had an even crackle that's fine cracks, of faint, fine lines. In the past, this had led Kearney to think they might be made of porcelain. They might have been ancient. In the end, they seemed neither. Their weight, their solidity in the hand had reminded him from time to time of poker dice and of the counters used in the Chinese game Mayong. Each face featured a deeply incised symbol. These symbols were coloured. Some of the colors, particularly the blues and reds, always seemed too bright given the ambient illumination. Others seemed too dim. They were unreadable. He thought they came from a pictographic alphabet. He thought they were the symbols of a numerical system. He thought that from time to time they had changed between one cast and another, as if the results of a throw affected the system itself. In the end, he did not know what to think. Instead, he had given them names. The Vortman move, the high dragon, the stag's great horns, What part of his unconscious these names emerged from, he had no clue. All of them made him feel uneasy, but the words, the stag's great horns, made his skin crawl. There was a thing that looked like a food processor. There was another thing that looked like a ship, an old ship. You looked at it one way and it was an old ship. You looked at it another way and it was nothing at all. Looking was no solution. How could you know which way was up? Over the years, Kearney had seen pi in the symbols. He had seen Planck's constants. He had seen a model of the Fibonacci sequence. He had seen what he thought was a code for the arrangement of hydrogen bonds in the primitive protein molecules of the autocatalytic set. Kearney and Sprake go to Gordon's office, who's, remember, the guy who is funding the quantum computer research, and he finds out he has sold the project to Sony, which means that his and Brian Tate's work will cease due to Funding cuts. Kearney sees the Shrander, which fills him with fear. He tells Sprague, It's closer than ever. It wants me to do something. He goes back to Gordon's office. They drag him down to a river and drown him. When he kills, quote, He felt for an instant as if he had escaped again. Escaped from the Shrander. We have a vivid description of the first time he witnessed Shrander's house. Quote, Bare, grey, dusty floorboards, neck curtains, cold grey light, a dull house on a dull street. The shrander, intact, irrefragable, enduring, stood in its upper room, gazing magisterially out of the window like the captain of a ship. Kearney ran away from it because, as much as anything, he was frightened of the coat it wore. He was frightened of the smell of wet wool. That smell would be his last unfallen sensation. The beak opened, words were spoken. Panic. It was his own. Filled the room like a clear liquid. An albumen or icing glass, so thick he was forced to turn and swim his way through the open door. His arms worked in a sort of breaststroke while his legs ran beneath him in useless slow motion. He stumbled across the landing outside and straight down the stairs, full of terror and ecstasy, the dice in his hand, into the rainy streets, looking for someone to kill. He knew he wouldn't be saved unless he did. A kind of lateral gravity was in his favour fell all the way from the Schrander's house towards the railway station. To travel, he hoped, would be to fall away from falling at some more acceptable, some more merciful angle. He does murder, although the narrator is very reticent about any details. Her name is Sophie. She is dressed all in black, a business suit, funereal. At the end of the section, quote, something, he thought it was a shrink-wrapped lettuce rolled sour along the empty carriage. There's something so dark and ominous about that image a metaphorical decapitation of this poor woman. Remember, now Kearney discovers that Brian Tate has sold their ideas to Sony, which enrages Kearney. As he is searching for an emaciated cat at their old laboratory, he notices the Shrunder in a new form. Quote, down near his feet, it wasn't a cat, it was a quiet spill of light, emerging like fluid from one of the ruptured displays and licking out across the floor towards Kearney's feet. Jesus, he shouted, he jumped up, The male cat made a panicky hissing noise and squirmed out of his arms. He heard it hit the floor and run off into the dark. Light continued to pour out of the broken screen, a million points of light which shoaled round his feet in a cold fractal dance, scaling into the shape he most feared. Each point he knew and every point which comprised it, and every point which comprised the point before that, would also make the same shape. ''There is always more,'' Kanye whispered. ''There is always more after that,'' he threw up suddenly staggered away, bumping into things in the dark, until he found the outside door. It hadn't been rage that made Tate destroy the equipment. It had been fear. Kearney ran to the street without looking back. It's exciting reading a book about the discovery of a new science. Obviously, this new science is something horrific and damaging. It reminds me a little of the discovery of radium. Marie Curie discovered a new element that was so dangerous, but at the time, the excitement of the science Of the new discovery and the consequent lack of knowledge of the harmful effects meant they were blind to the effects of this new discovery. We hear a little bit more about the Kefahuhi Tract. Quote, human beings hooked by the mystery of the Kefahuhi Tract arrived on its doorstep 200 years after they got into space. So that's around 2150, I guess. That's 350 years before Syria and Ed Chinese. Quote, They sensed there was money to be made, they dived right in, they started wars, they stunned into passivity five of the alien races they found in possession of the galaxy and fought the sixth, which they called the Nastic, out of a mistranslation of the Nastic's word for space to a wary truce. After that, they fought one another. So, human. The humans go to the beach and found Radio Bay. The technology to build artificial suns exists and a world called Red Line is made where quote spring arrived twice in five years then for a whole year in the next 20 then every other day when it came it was the colour and quality of cheap neon steaming radio jungles and blue lit. How can you make spring cheap by making it happen every other day not just once a year? Now we learn that this is where Billy Anker lives. Siri Mao is going to find him and find out why that rogue cultivar is looking for a Dr. Hans. At least that's what I'm hoping. I wonder if the Shrander will have anything to do with this mystery. She sends a holographic image, a fetch, to see him. And when he asks what she really looks like, she says, quote, I'm a K ship. Just to clarify to us that Siri has become subsumed into her ship. She is a spaceship. That's. Very cool, he responds with, quote, "You aren't just a k ship, you're the white cat. You're the girl who stole the white cat." She was surprised he worked that out so fast. End quote. She asked where he got her rogue cultivar who asked for Dr. Hans. He is resistant to give that information, so he asked for the reason she stole the white cat in exchange. She says how the mathematics of her ship put her into a deep sleep and stole it for her. It wasn't her who did the stealing. Now, do we believe this tale? She explains why it's called the White Cat. Quote, we hung there in the dark, the ship, the mathematics and me. There was nothing to orient ourselves by, except the tract, faint, distant, winking like a bad eye. Suddenly I remember the legend the original space captains had when they first used the tate Kearney transformations all those hundreds of years ago to find their way from star to star. How in the long watches of the night they would sometimes see inside their navigational holograms a ghostly vision of Brian Tate himself toppling through the vacuum with his white cat on his shoulders. That's when I chose the name. There's another link with Kearney. So she learns she's still being followed. The ship sends her to sleep and she dreams of a card with the drawing of a showman on it. The card reads, quote, Dr. Hand's psychic surgeon appears twice nightly. Is the dream an implant from the mathematics or is it a genuine dream? Very, very strange. Now, Billy Anger offers to give the history of the rogue Dr. Hand's cultivar package in exchange for accompanying him to redline his home. Quote, to see some things. But just as this exchange is happening, the EMC, presumably those previous employees that she escaped from, catch up with Syria. But she realizes that they've actually come for Billy Anker. Quote, we're a side issue. It's a police raid. They've come for Billy Anker and he hasn't a clue how to help himself. What has Billy got that they want? Now, Krish who quote, signed on younger than Syria, demands to speak with Billy. Billy escapes on the White Cat with Syria Mao. He watches as the EMC blow up the South Polar Artefact, a quote, featureless gunmetal ziggurat a million years old on five miles on the side at the base. Billy cries, quote, It was still receiving data from somewhere in the tract. We could have learned something from that thing. This old stuff is all we have, it's our only resource. I learned everything from that thing. But he refuses to tell Syria what he has learned. She asks him whether what they want is on her ship. And he says, quote, in a manner of speaking, he made a gesture meant to take in all of Radio Bay, maybe even the vast sweep of the beach itself. It's out there too. I'm thinking, what, what, what is he referring to? Is it the road cultivar or the means of making it? And there the first half ends. Whoa, what a tremendous ride. That was a fantastic first half. I think it's incredible so far such a massive exploration of fantasy and science the Shrander is truly terrifying have you ever read or heard anything described in such dark and horrifying sentences and those cray sisters are so scary but at the same time laugh out loud funny in all their fancy clothes I love Syria I love the fact that she is a ship she has melded with a ship and is just this disembodied consciousness that has to generate a body in order to interact with other humans I definitely makes me consider the value of the physical body and how in this universe it developed to become such an important part of life. So what do you make of the story so far? Are you enjoying it? Let me know. So there are a few questions that I'm hoping will be answered in the next part. Will Kearney defeat the Shrander or will it consume him? And what was the South Polar artifact that Billy has learned so much from and that has now been destroyed? And what has he found out that the EMC are desperate for? What did the Cray sisters want from Ed Chinese? And what will the ramifications of Ed killing Evie Cray be? Will Bella get her revenge? And why does he owe them so much? Some interesting questions. I really like those descriptions of the Shrander. Have a listen to this, quote. It swam with the little fishes in the shadow of a willow, just as it had sorted the stones on the beach when he was two. It informed every landscape. Its attentions had begun with dreams in which he walked on the green flat surface of canal water or felt something horrible inhabiting a pile of Lego bricks. Dragons were expressed as the smoke from engines while the mechanical parts of the engines themselves turned over with a kind of nauseous, oily slowness and Kearney woke to find a rubber thing soaking in the bathroom sink. The Shranda was in all of that. Quite horrifying. And when he talks about the Shrander's dice, quote, they always felt warm. The symbols on them appeared in no language or system of numbers he knew, historical or modern. On a pair of ordinary dice, each symbol would be duplicated. Here none was. And remember that horrific vision of the skull. Remember, he explained to Anna that it looked like a quote, horse's skull. The skull of a horse looks nothing like the head at all, but like an enormous curved shears or a bone beak whose two halves meet only at the tip. Imagine, he had told her, a wicked, intelligent, purposeless looking thing which apparently cannot speak. A few ribbons or strips of flesh dangle and flutter from it. Even the shadow of that is more than you can bear to see. Now, a quick Wikipedia search on light gave me the following illuminating information. It also gave me that cheat about dr hens being an anagram of Schrander. harrison appears to have taken his inspiration for this strange entity the shears like skull with ribbons hanging from it from the legend of the which is quote a creature with a horse's skull for a head bedecked in ribbons that features in the ancient folklore of gwent and glamorgan The Sharanda seems to be the personification of fear and of perhaps obsession. It is truly dark. It reminds me a little of those The Grim that Harry Potter used to see if you ever read Harry Potter, although these don't appear to be omens, more like awful apparitions that instruct and decide. That's quite interesting in the book, The Moment of Choice. I'm no physicist, but there is a theory that At the point of choice, a new universe is born so that both choices can play out. It derives from a study of quantum physics. If you're a scientist, I'm sure you'll know far more than me about that. But Brian Tate explores this idea by, quote, the constant talk about physics and money. He'd spent most of his free time in his room, switching restlessly from TV channel to TV channel with the sound turned down. This led him to think about choice. The moment of choice, he thought, could be located very exactly as one image flickered broke and was replaced by the next. If he levered things apart, if he could get into the exact moment of transition, what would you find? Entertaining himself with the fancy of an unknown station, something more watchable than reruns of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, transmitting into the gap, into the moment of choice, he had tried to record a series of channel changes on the VCR and play them back in stop frame. This had proved to be impossible. Perhaps this is what the Strander is doing. It's giving him a choice and he's choosing this really bad choice to murder these people I'm sure that will get explained maybe in the the second half have you noticed that there's quite a few funny words in the book so far like dip ships which is quite funny I think, there's a ship called Cassiotone which is brilliant we've got Ed Chianese when he's in the Twink Tank so we added that A we've got Dr Heians we've added that E we've also got the idea of unpredictability in the book, those dice for certain. Kearney explains to Inga, who got him into tarot, quote, events we describe as random often aren't, he said, watching her hands shuffle and deal, shuffle and deal, they're only unpredictable. He was anxious she should understand the distinction. And then we've got the light from the novel title. Kearney recalls, quote, "...mathematical physics was opening to him like a flower, revealing his future inside, but the future wasn't quite enough. By following the journeys as they fell out, he believed then he would open for himself what he thought of as a fifth direction. It would lead to the real Gauslands, perhaps. It would enact those dreams of childhood when everything had been filled with promise and predestination and light." Obviously, there's a lot of science in the book. Syria visits the planet Perkins IV to attempt to set down the last surviving clone that she didn't quite manage to kill. And on this planet, the quote, children were playing a game of, I went to the particle market and I bought, they had got as far as a Higgs boson, some neutral k mesons and a long-lived neutral K-on, which decayed into two pions by CP-violating processes. When a single flat concussion rattled the windows and a matte grey wedge-shaped object, covered all over in intakes, dive brakes, and power bulges, shot across the town 100 feet up and stopped inside its own length. It was the white cat. The children rushed to the schoolhouse windows, shouting and cheering. Quite humorous and irreverent. Reminds me a little of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That mix of banal English everyday life with very complicated science fiction. Now, those shadow operators are quite interesting in this first half. They're very quiet and subservient, working in the shadows, on board the White Cat. They obey Sirius every whim. And it reminds me a little bit of the assistance at the beginning of the castle by Kafka, voiceless and subservient. Billy Anker mistrusts them deeply. Quote, There were no shadow operators on board the karaoke sword. That's his ship. If you wanted something doing, it was do-it-yourself. Billy Anker mistrusted the shadow operators, though he never would say why. Now, it's quite interesting. We've got this very highly sexualized clothing, and that's probably from the alien race that took over the Earth, perhaps. Just like they developed all those fast food restaurants and Coke restaurants. Quote, At that moment, Mona, the clone, walked out from among the hieroglyphs on the wall of Billy Anker's control room. Her fetch a smaller and cheaper version of herself, flickered like bad neon. It was wearing red F me pumps with five inch heels, a calf length latex tube, lime green, and a bolero top in pink and wool. His hair was done up in bunches of matching ribbon. Why are there all these clothing? Is it perhaps some comment on the degradation of humans or the high living bohemian non-family dynamics of the situation? Remember the cray sisters and their fancy garb. I do love it though, it's very glitzy and colorful. So, so far, really, really enjoying reading light and I'm looking forward to getting those questions answered in the second half. I'd now like to share some of your thoughts on last month's book, Treka Walker by Alan Garner and some wonderful comments on the web and good reads. Barbara said, sadly, I was incapable of seeing the magnificence of this novel. It's shortlisted for the booker and it was too far in the fantasy genre for me to understand. Plus the wording, too archaic or too much local vernacular, which went beyond my head of comprehending. I don't even know what I read. I went past my usual 50 pages before giving up. I thought, it's shortlisted. It must be relevant. I guess I'm not relevant. Oh, well, I gave it the old college try. Please, someone tell me. Who or what is the point of Finn Amran? I couldn't even understand his comic books. Anyway, although I finished the 152-page story, thank God it wasn't longer, I cannot rate it because I didn't get it. And Roman Claudia said, quote, I feel I should preface this with the fact that I'm a huge Alan Garner fan and have been since reading his Elidor and the Owl service as a child. The latter especially has been a book I've returned to and still enjoy as an adult with its retelling of one of the myths from Mabinogion. His Redshift is a book wasted on kids and I have a huge affection for the Weirdstone books, though have just realized that I've never read the third part of the trilogy, Boneland, which brings back Colin as an adult. All this is background to me, saying that I found Treacle Walker messy as a book. Now, I don't mind a book that is elusive rather than linear, that expects readers to engage imaginatively with the text and fill spaces in a creative way. Happy to do all those things, but here the fragments we have to work with feel raggedy and sometimes a bit arch. I also don't understand why the language is so old fashioned, not archaic, not a throwback to old or middle English or the alchemical Latin that Joe reads into his eye test, but something that feels like 1950s Cockney, Tickety-boo, old boy, me old mucker. This almost feels like a sort of greatest hits of Garner's work. The rag and bow man with the white horse recalls the pony trap that meets Colin and Susan at the station at the start of Weirdstone. And is also a reference to the elderly myth of the sleeping army with their white horses, which will wake and come to the rescue in England's hour of need. There are bogmen and magical artefacts, mirrors and stones, the cuckoo perhaps a reminder of the owls. Garner's trademark liminal places where worlds meet and seep into each other here seem to be the threshold between life and an afterlife with both the Noonie and the rag and bone trap, possibly vehicles, to carry Joe over. Time collapses as it does in Redshift and Joe seems to simultaneously be boy and old man. Reality is questioned and there's an old, old play on what it means to see and not see. For me, I kept waiting for this to here in some way but it never really did. The classic books Garner has written still stand up to contemporary readings because the language is not dated in the way it is here. In addition, I found the ideas wheeling around in this book to have been treated largely more effectively in previous books, though perhaps the nearness of death has greater resonance here, if that is how we read Joe. I'm delighted to see Garner so unexpectedly on the book-along list, but sad that I found this so flabby and disjointed. Thank you very much for those comments. And if you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them too. Leave a comment below or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. I'd also love suggestions for future books to read together. Maybe there's been one sitting on your shelf for ages which you haven't got around to reading and you just need that push to get started. Talking of next books, after I've discussed the second half of Light in two weeks, that's the 26th of May, June's two episodes will be all about the trilogy by Samuel Beckett, Malloy, Malone Dies and The Unamable. It's 418 pages, so get that one ready and join me if you can. Also, if you enjoyed this, please give it a thumbs up and subscribe or give it five stars on your episode app. Thank you. Anyway, I look forward to discussing the last half of Light in two weeks. See you then.